0: Welcome, it's great to see all of you here on our campus. Let me welcome everybody to join us online. And let me kinda jump in there with some of the things um, Abby was just talking about. I really wanna encourage uh, all the guys, be at this men's breakfast, all the ladies, uh, show up for a Reveal. These are really great opportunities uh, to make some friends in our church. So we're spread out over two services and there's lots of people who attend here. And uh, we love that and it's fun to come together on Sundays and worship together. But if that's the extent of your experience here at New Hope, you really are missing out. We want want you to get to make some friends and get to know some individuals, and uh, this is a great way to do that. So we're looking forward to those two things happening in just a few weeks, and then obviously if you're new to our church, we would love for you to join us next Sunday for New to New Hope. So we're in week two of On the Edge, and if you're just jumping in today, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, We're trying to see how sometimes God can help us find the purpose in our pain, and I'm excited to share today's message with you. But before we get to that, um, I've got to mention our Right Now Special Offering, One, last time. So I told you last Sunday kind of where we were and that we had left it open for uh, one more uh, Sunday and a few more days, and I challenged everybody to give, and so people just kept giving, and finally our financial team was like, enough. No, I'm kidding. They didn't say that, all right? (laughs) So uh, they did. (laughs) We did wrap that up this week, but I need to tell you the final number, all right? So maybe you're hearing this for the first time. So we have five ministry initiatives for this year. The goal is $500,000, and uh, our church is just incredibly generous. And so again, goal of $500,000, and the final number, all of the giving, what you gave to this special offering, $539,000. So can we praise God for that? That's just unbelievable, it's incredible. And uh, we've already started putting that money uh, to work just this past Thursday, Pam Watson, our missions pastor, emailed one of our local mission partners had kind of an urgent need. They had some machinery that broke, and we were able to step right in uh, because of your generosity and help solve that. And we're going to share a little bit more about that in detail in a few weeks, the video, uh, but none of that happens without you being generous with this special offering. And so again, as we move through these initiatives this year, we'll keep you posted, pictures, videos, stories. It's gonna be amazing. Before today, uh, we gotta keep moving with this idea of finding purpose in our pain. And the title of today's message is a little challenging, but it's how we actually find purpose in the pain of my own doing. In other words, we created the problem. You ever seen the saying, everything happens for a reason? Sometimes that reason is you're really dumb. (laughs) You made a really bad decision. Now listen, if that's the case, it's all right. Welcome to the team. We've all been there, okay? And you may be there right now. And it's a different kind of hurt when you have to acknowledge the problem with my circumstances and the pain of my circumstances is directly correlated to something I did to cause this. Now sometimes in life, that's not the case. Other people do things to us and it causes pain. And we're gonna talk about that next week. What are we supposed to do when we're the recipient of pain and we didn't really contribute to it? And We're gonna talk about that next week. So if that's your story, if that's what you're walking through, I'm gonna encourage you to be here. But see, whether we contributed to the pain or whether someone else contributed to the pain, our God is good enough that he can help us find purpose in the pain. And so we're gonna talk about that today and we're gonna talk about that through the lens of oftentimes acknowledging that when we've contributed to the pain, it's of our own doing, sometimes those of us who are a little bit more rebellious are the ones that this is our story, okay? So in life, there's basically two kinds of people. There are rule keepers and there are rule breakers, okay? The Bible would call this religious and rebellious, See, some people are super religious. What do I mean by that? They think that if, we just, if I just do enough good things in this life and I treat people better than myself, when I die, I'll get to go to heaven because I did a lot of really good things. There are other people who are incredibly rebellious, and, and there's no false sense of believing that they're good people. They're like, man, my whole life, I've done a lot of really bad things. And see, Scripture speaks to both of these situations. The good news of the gospel is that you can't do enough good things to get to God, so that's why he came after you. And there's not so much bad that you can do that puts you beyond the reach of God's love. So, whether you're religious or rebellious, both groups of people need Jesus. And so, religious people will break, religious re- people keep all the rules, rebellious people break all the rules. And so, let's just have some fun. I want to get a feel for the room this morning. How many of you would say, just kind of my natural wiring is I am a rule keeper? All right, just give me the rules, tell me what's expected, and I want to do that. I'm so blessed to see so many hands in there. This is good, all right? My goodness, without all of you, this world would just fall apart at the seams, all right? So thank you, thank you, on behalf of the rest of the planet, thank you, all right? Now, I would ask all the rebellious rule breakers to raise their hands, but you wouldn't raise your hands anyway because you're rebellious, all right? So i uh, <laughs> not even gonna ask you to do that, all right? But we are gonna look at a guy today who was kind of a rebel at heart. He was rebellious, he was deceitful, He kind of lived his life this way. He always put himself first, and everybody else had to deal with the repercussions, and his name is Jacob. And there's a lot that we can learn from Jacob's life. And Jacob created a lot of problems that he then later had to deal with the problems that he had created. And so uh, maybe you're new to the Bible. Let's kind of make sure we know who Jacob is. God shows up in Genesis 12 to a guy named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, says, I'm gonna give you descendants that outnumber the stars. And for the rest of the Old Testament, God builds the nation of Israel through Abraham's family. Now when we meet Jacob, we're three generations in. Abraham has a son named Isaac, Isaac has a son named Jacob. And this family has all kind of interesting things that happen. Where we finally get to see Jacob is actually through the lens of how he was born. And so Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Jacob and Esau. And uh, we're gonna read the passage here where we first see Jacob's name mentioned in God's word. And, and then we're gonna begin to kind of background his life. And I'm gonna show you how he had kind of done some things that created some pain of his own doing. And at the end of our time together today, I hope that we can see some principles, not just from the life of Jacob, but principles that we can apply to our lives as well. So let's look at the passage where we meet Jacob, Genesis 25 Verses 24 through 26. When the time came for her to give birth, and so her is Isaac's wife, Rebecca, okay? So when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. That literally means heel grabber or deceiver. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them, these twin boys. And before we talk about Jacob, can we just talk about Esau for a second? Did y'all see what that said? It said that he was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment, okay? Now, if you have a new baby, and the way you describe this baby is he looks like a hairy garment, all right? That is not a good Description, I'm fairly certain that Esau is Hebrew for Ewok. That's what that means, all right? Ewok. Can you imagine like the birth announcement, all right? I mean, we just put the bed, and put this whole argument, all newborn babies are beautiful. They're not, according to God's word, okay? Some of them look like hairy garments, all right? So uh, I just think that's fantastic that we get those details, and all the ladies are like, I can't believe you said that. It's in the Bible, all right? Take it up with God, all right? It's in the Bible. So anyway, Esau, the ugly, hairy baby, he grows up, and so does Jacob. I'm just gonna keep going back to that well, all right? And a sibling rivalry develops. Now, the parents don't help. They choose favorites. So on one side, you've got Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, and then on the other side, you've got Esau and his father, Isaac. And Esau is like the outdoorsman. He's an archer. He can go out and go hunting with his bow and arrow and bring back Food and he's kind of like the do anything. He he can fix anything. Like that's Esau and Jacob. You know he just kind of hangs out in his basement. I mean that's kind of Jacob. Like he he doesn't want to go outside. He's kind of a mama's boy. And so so they kind of grow up and they don't like each other. And about the time they're kind of in their early teens, uh, Esau comes back one day and he wasn't able to, to to hunt or catch anything. Not catch anything. Shoot anything. I know that that's what he does. For those you don't know, so he couldn't bring it back to eat and he's starving. And he looks at Jacob and Jacob's eating some soup that he and mommy have prepared in the kitchen and he's eating this soup. And Esau's like, give me the soup, I'm starving. Jacob's like, no, like I don't care that you've been out all night, like it doesn't matter to me. Esau's like, no, I'm serious, like I need to eat, I'm starving. And Jacob says, that's fine, I'll trade you this bowl of soup if you'll give me your birthright. That would be the equivalent if, if your kids got in a fight, all right, at your house and they got in a fight, and one of them went, fine, I'll let you win, as long as when mom and dad die one day, you'll give me your side of the inheritance. That's what's happening here, okay? And Esau literally does, he makes this trade. He trades his birthright for a bowl of soup, and so that just escalates things, and it just keeps getting worse, and it keeps getting worse, and where we're gonna pick it up here in a minute is kind of the tipping point of their relationship. So we know that Isaac is near the end of his life. From context, we can tell that Jacob and Esau are probably right around the age of 18, maybe close to 20, and Isaac is going to die soon. He's already lost his eyesight, and the time has come for him to pass down the blessing to Esau. We can't fully comprehend the significance of this because we don't do this in our culture, but this is a one-time blessing that you can't go back on, and it is specifically designed to be received by the oldest son. And so Isaac tells Esau, go out and hunt. Bring me back a meal that I can have before I bestow this blessing upon you. The problem is that Rebecca overhears this. She goes to Jacob and tells him this is about what's going to happen. And so they develop a a plot to deceive uh, their father, okay? So they're working together to be deceptive. So Genesis 27, verses 15 through 19 gives us this account. So Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and she put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Really? Y'all remember Harry Esau? He stayed hairy, all right? So she literally has to cover Jacob with goat skins because he's fair-skinned. I mean, his hands, they blister quickly, all right? So she's gotta make sure she covers him with the goat skins. So she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made, of course she made it. Verse 18, he went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. That level of deceit. I've done as you told me, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing and their plan works. Isaac gives Jacob the blessing, the one that was supposed to go to Esau, and scripture says that right as Jacob left, Esau came in with the meal prepared for Isaac, and Isaac immediately recognizes what had happened, and he and Esau weep, because they both recognize that there's nothing that can be done about this. So this event literally sends Jacob running for his life. In fact, he's going to spend the next 20 years of his life running from Esau. Esau's trying to track down Jacob for what he did. And you would think that at this point in the story, God would look at Jacob and say, my goodness, like are you ever going to learn? You continue to deceive people, you continue to lie, you continue to take what is not yours. But as you read through Genesis, what you find is that God keeps showing up and blessing Jacob. That when Jacob is faithless to God, God remains faithful to him. And somebody needs to hear that today because some of your lives look a lot like Jacob's. Like you've deceived a bunch of people. You've done a lot of things that you're not proud of and it's easy to think at some point that God will give up on you. I have some good news for you today, he won't. He loves you too much. God's faithfulness to you is not based on your faithfulness to him and we see that through Jacob who eventually crosses paths with his uncle named Laban. And he goes to work for his uncle. His uncle uncle's a shepherd, and so now Jacob can become a shepherd. And in working for his uncle, he meets um, his uncle's daughter, Rachel, and they fall in love with each other. And now Jacob wants to marry Rachel and have a wife, and so he approaches Laban, and he says, I wanna marry your daughter. And Laban says, we can make that happen. The only thing is you've gotta work for me for seven years, So if you work for seven years, then I will give you my daughter in marriage. And Jacob says, deal. And so he does this, he literally works for his uncle for the next seven years so that he can get married. And so we pick up that account in Genesis 29, verses 20 20 and 21. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Sweet it's just so sweet, so um, it's Valentine's Day this week, I don't know if y'all know that, all right, but um, if you've been married for longer than seven years, that might be a good line, all right, you might wanna put that in a card, okay, been married for seven years, seems like seven minutes, all right, I just think that's, you know, sweet, it's, it's a nice little sentiment, okay, and you would think, you would think that this would be how Jacob would approach Laban about receiving permission to ask for Rachel to marry him. But like, hey, been doing this for seven years, it's not a big deal, because I love her so much. This is not how he approaches the situation. It's typical Jacob. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I wanna make love with her. Very subtle, right? (laughs) It's like, of all the things you could say, like if you're asking a father for permission to marry his daughter, do not use that line, okay, don't. Don't do that. Now, what happens from here on out, it just goes to a whole different level. When I was in high school, there was this show called Jerry Springer. <coughs> and all y'all watched it too, all right? So, uh, <laughs> so we're about to go Jerry Springer in the Old Testament. Anybody that thinks the Bible is boring, you haven't read enough of it, okay? So let me tell you what happens. So this has all been arranged. And so now there's a wedding and all the different things. And, and weddings are a little different back then. You know, they'd kind of would drag out. They did a big celebration the last several days. And the Bible doesn't give us all the details, but apparently what happened is um, Laban decided, I'm gonna deceive the deceiver. So Jacob's been deceiving people his whole life. And again, we don't know all the details, but my own guess is that Jacob got a little overserved at the wedding reception. Okay, that, that's what I think. I think Jacob got drunk. Um, And the reason why I think this is because he literally goes to bed with his wife on his wedding night, and I don't have to fill in the details of what happens on that particular evening, but when he woke up the next morning and rolled over, it wasn't Rachel, it was her sister Leah. That's called being deceived, okay? So Jacob goes to Laban, he's like, hey, hey. Time out, like what just happened? And, and Laban says, well, this is how it works in our culture. The older sister has to, you know, marry first. And so now Jacob is officially married to Leah and he thought he would married Rachel. And you think, well, that's not that big of a deal, but it was a big deal because he wasn't in love with, with, with Leah. He's in love with Rachel. And the Bible has an interesting way with words. The Bible tells us that Leah actually was not as attractive as her sister. And so I just need you for a second to like see what's happening here. I told y'all Jerry Springer, okay, that's what's happening here. And so Laban says, no worries, Jacob, you can marry Rachel, just work for me for seven more years. So he does. Can you imagine that man's life for the next seven years, okay? He's married to one sister and love with the other sister and all the while, all of this is happening. And so finally, he gets to marry Rachel. He's 14 years in, he's got two wives now, they both have servants that they just choose to throw into the mix, giving him two more wives. Jacob now has four wives, which if you're counting is three too many, okay? That's how that works. This is a mess. It's from these four wives that eventually 12 sons will be born. We did a series back in the fall called Plan B on the life of Joseph. Joseph is one of these 12 sons. And you think, how could brothers sell one of their brothers into slavery. In this kind of family, anything can happen, okay? That's what we're talking about. Now, Jacob works for Laban for six more years. He finally says, enough, I'm gonna move on with my life. The whole story of how he leaves Laban is a sermon in and of itself. I don't have time to go into all of that. But where we're gonna pick up the passage and where I really want us to focus today in Genesis chapter 32 is that 20 to 25 years after Jacob had deceived Isaac, and stolen his blessing, he's gonna confront Esau. And he knows this, there's literally nothing he can do about it. And when we get to Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is a wealthy man, he's got cattle, he's got sheep, he's got goats, he's got wives, he's got sons, he's got people that work, work for him. So when he leaves Laban, this is a procession of hundreds of people, if not thousands. And he knows that Esau knows where he's at. Esau has found him, and he knows that he's going to be confronted by Esau. And so Jacob develops one last scheme. He thinks maybe I can soften up Esau. Again, he's always a manipulator, he always has to control the circumstances. And so what he does is he breaks up all of his cattle and his sheep and his goats into different groups and he sends them ahead with a specific message for Esau. Literally, Esau, these are from your brother Jacob. All of this is now yours. And then he'd wait a day or two and then he would send the next group and then he would wait a day or two and he would send the next group. And his hope was that as Esau got closer to him, every time he was given a new gift, it would soften him up towards Jacob, again, he's trying to manage the situation here until so finally he has sent everybody across the river except for himself, and he is now alone. For probably the first time in decades, Jacob is alone. He's going to spend the night alone in the desert by himself, knowing that the next morning when he wakes up, he's going to have to face his brother Esau. And when he goes to bed that night, we are presented with one of the more bizarre accounts in all of scripture where we see that Jacob literally wrestles with God. So it's a longer passage, hang with me here, and then we're gonna pull some principles from this. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. A very bizarre story. Before we look at the principles, say, what's happening here? I'll tell you what I think is happening here. And Theologians look at this differently and reach different conclusions, and that's okay, but my conclusion is that Jacob was actually wrestling with Jesus. There are some places in the Old Testament where I believe Jesus shows up, because see, Jesus didn't show up at the first Christmas. The first Christmas is the incarnation, when he left heaven and he became one of us. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. And so I believe this is a theophany or a Christophany where Jesus makes an appearance in the Old Testament. The reasons for this, I believe, are one, uh, Jesus changes his name. This is not something that angels have permission to do. And then two, When Jacob says, I came face to face with God, there's nothing in scripture to counter uh, this account from Jacob. And so I believe that's what happened with Jacob. But more significant is, what does that actually mean to us? I mean, this is like a one time in history event and we're spending a lot of time backgrounding it and talking about it. And what I think it matters, and the reason why we're talking about this today is for some of you here today, I think you've reached your point of reckoning. And I know that because you're here. I know that because you're joining us online, either live or maybe you're watching this at some point in the future. But your backstory is a series of events that God kinda wants you now to own. And he's brought you to a place of reckoning where he actually wants to direct your path differently moving forward. But I think if we can see what happens to Jacob and if we can see what can happen to us when we're in these situations, I believe that we can see how we can find purpose, and the pain of our own doing. So here's the first thing I think we can see from this. Sometimes God's pursuit means he provokes a fight. That is what happens here. This wrestling match was God's idea, not Jacob's. Jacob was going to bed that night, hoping to get a good night's sleep so that he could wake up tomorrow and face his greatest fear, Esau. But see, God had not stopped pursuing Jacob. And the way that God's pursuit of Jacob was going to look was he was actually going to pick a fight with him. And he was going to invite him into a wrestling match. He said, why would God do that? Because God knows for Jacob and God knows for many of us, sometimes the best thing he can do is bring divine disruption into our lives to cause the circumstances of our lives to turn from those circumstances and finally turn towards God. See, God can't get your attention as long as everything's going well. And so he brings divine disruption. God knows that we don't grow until we get uncomfortable. So he brings divine disruption into our lives. God knows that we do not change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. So he brings heat into our lives. He brings divine disruption into our lives. And for many of us, we would love to think of a God who pursues us in the middle of a worship set. Might I suggest this morning, God may pursue you by picking a fight with you, by causing everything in your life to finally fall apart so you finally have to reckon with what you've done to get your life to that point. And someone says, is that a gracious and kind, loving God? Of course it is, because we would love to be left alone. We would love to not be confronted. We would love to not have divine disruption in our lives. But see, God loves us too much to not bring that divine disruption to our lives. So sometimes what God does is he brings us to our point of reckoning so that he once again has our attention. Here's the second thing I think we can see from the story. Submitting to the fight is the opportunity to ask for the blessing. See, oftentimes we want a blessing from God and we wanna ask God to bless us and we would prefer to pray that prayer on our knees in the comfort of our living room. But what if God wants to invite you into a struggle, into a fight? What if God wants to show you that the blessing is in the wrestling? What if God knows that you actually won't get to a point of need and call on him to bless you until you actually have to? And this is what happened for Jacob. See, Jacob wrestles with God all night and it's finally over and Jacob's like, wait a second. I'm not just gonna go through this for nothing. I'm gonna demand a blessing from you. And did you know that's how good our God is? That God doesn't just bring you to a point of reckoning. God doesn't just pick a fight to draw attention to your circumstances. God does this so that you can ultimately get something from it. But you see, God has to bring you through it before you can get something from it. See, God wants to do something in you before he does something through you. And for many of you, you're in the middle of a circumstance right now and it's not good. Maybe you're having to face some consequences of some things that have happened in your past. Maybe your day of reckoning has occurred. Here's some good news for you. You can ask God to still bless you. You can ask God to do a work in you. Our God is so good that for years after this, he will be able to show you how he was actually working in the midst of it. And there are many who can give testimony that the greatest blessings in their life came from the most difficult circumstances. But if you run from God, if you blame God, if you turn on God, you will miss the opportunity to request the blessing from God. But when you submit to the fight, it is the opportunity to ask for that blessing. Here's the third thing I think we see from this story today. The blessing of the fight is the new person we become. This is what happened for Jacob. He entered into the wrestling match with God as Jacob the deceiver. His name was changed to Israel the overcomer. And for many of us, this is what God desires to do. And then what he brings us to this point He pursues us, he causes us to face up to what's happened. The goal of this encounter is that we become a new person. See, you cannot encounter a real and living God and leave not changed. If you think you've encountered God and you haven't changed, you haven't encountered God, you've just had a warm, fuzzy, emotional experience. But when we encounter a real and living God, we're changed into new people. See, this is actually the foundation of the good news of the gospel message, is that when God meets us in our sin, he doesn't just take us in our sin and go, you know what? You've kinda been a pretty bad person and, and we're gonna put some polish on you and we're gonna fix you up a little bit and we're gonna make you a better person. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that through Jesus, we actually become a new person. So let's step into the New Testament for a minute with this powerful verse from 2 Corinthians. Chapter five, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And for some of you, that's where God has you today. Your point of reckoning is realizing you need a savior. And what God's trying to show you graciously, lovingly, without condemnation, but from a gracious, kind perspective, is that you are the common thread to every problem that's ever existed in your life. Every broken relationship, every failed endeavor, every misstep in your career. You're the only one who is there every single time. And God has been gracious enough to show this to you. He's showing you that the problem is sin and you're not alone. We all have the same problem and our God is so good that he's not letting that keep you from him. It's why he sent Jesus to pay the price for that. So God doesn't beat you up over your sin. I say this all the time because he beat up his only son for your sin on the cross. Jesus defeated death through the resurrection. That matters because if you're gonna place your faith in someone, he better have defeated death. Jesus is the only one to do that, which means he's the only way back to God, which means he's the only way to eternal life, which means he's the only way to heaven. And at some point in our lives, all of us have to come to that point of reckoning and just say, God, I'm tired of fighting this. And the goal of the fight, the struggle, the pain is that you become a new person, that you move from death to life. And for some of you, that's where God has you. For others of you, it's not a point of salvation. You know you've given your life to Jesus. You know that you've experienced salvation, but in a moment of honesty, you've just kind of gotten off course. And you came here today, maybe even some things that nobody else knows about. You're joining us online. There's some things going on. Nobody else knows about, but God your Father knows about it, and he's pursued you to this point. He's brought you to this point of reckoning, and here's what he would say to you. He doesn't want you to leave the same way you came in. That's what our God does. Our God meets us where we are, redeems us where we are, sets our path anew, and moves us forward. See, the wonderful thing about our God is you can come to God and have literally been walking a particular way for the last five months, the last five years, or the last five decades. And when you have a real encounter with God and he changes who you are, the next five months, the next five years, the next five decades can look completely different. But it does involve a fight. It does involve a struggle. And if you feel that struggle today, that is God coming after you. That is God saying, let me bless you by giving you a new name. Let me bless you by allowing you to experience a new identity that can only be found in my son, Jesus Christ. And finally, here's what I think we see from the story. A good fight with God, it leaves you with a limp. It leaves you with a limp. That's what happened with, for Jacob. That literally, for the rest of his life, the best we can tell from the book of Genesis, he had a physical Limp, And when someone would ask him about it, he had this amazing story that he could share. But it wasn't just that God wanted to leave Jacob with a limp for a story. It was actually part of God's way of protecting Jacob from Esau. See, in Jacob's way of thinking, the best way to confront his brother was through his strength, through his might, which is why he sent all of these processions ahead of him to, to kind of say, hey, I've made a name for myself. I'm Jacob, I, I have a lot of things now, Esau. I, I need you to respect me. He, he was trying to engage his brother by might. And, and what God knew was the best way that, that Jacob could actually engage his brother was through a limp, through weakness. And it's actually a beautiful account. Maybe you can read it on your own time this week. When he finally confronts Esau, Esau greets him with compassion and kindness and graciousness. And these two brothers that have been at odds for the entirety of their life are finally unified and they stay unified for the rest of their years together. And isn't it just like our God to know Jacob, the best way you can approach this situation isn't through your strength, but actually through weakness. So I'm gonna give you something that yes, it's a weakness, but in this particular situation will serve you as a great strength. See, God knows some things you don't know. God knows some situations you don't know. God sees some things you don't see. And we all have to come to a place in our lives where we ultimately have to acknowledge whether or not we are going to agree with that and trust him or just keep doing things our own way, but if you have an encounter with God, he's gonna leave you with a limp. It may not be a physical limp like Jacob's, but it'll probably be a really good reminder that we cannot move forward in our own strength. So many times we have an encounter with God and man, we receive his grace and we receive his goodness and here's what happens, I know I've done this before if we're not careful. After this amazing encounter with God, it's almost like we look at God and say, God, I'll take it from here. And we just start moving forward in our own strength, completely forgetting that God had to bring us to our knees to acknowledge our need for Him. And we just stay stuck in that pattern. And see, when God leaves you with a limp, it's His gracious way of trying to keep you, keep me from going back into that pattern again. God, I am fully aware that I can't move forward in my own strength because I have a limp. I've left that behind, but I've got a reminder of it. Church, I don't think we struggle with being dependent upon God. I think that most of us recognize, I need God, I depend on God. Let me tell you, I think we struggle. We struggle with being desperate for God. Was the last time you're desperate for God? Was the last time you knew, God, if, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. See, that's what a limp does. A limp keeps you desperate for God. The most kind and gracious thing our God could do in this world we live in, which takes our focus off of him so frequently, is give us a limp to keep us desperate for the heart of the Father. Would you bow your head with me this morning? And so God, as we come to you right now, we just simply want to acknowledge that you're good. And God, you're good because you pursue us. God, you're good because you don't leave us where we are. God, you're good because sometimes you instigate some things in our lives that get our attention off of ourselves and back on to you. God, you're good because you bless us. God, you're good because you change who we are as we walk through these seasons. And God, you're good because you give us these supernatural reminders of our encounters with you. You leave us with a limp. And God, may we just declare collectively today our desperation for you. That God, we don't wanna move forward in our own strength. That God, if it takes you picking a fight with us to get our eyes back on you, God, we submit ourselves to that because God, we don't wanna move forward without you. God, we don't wanna move forward in our own strength. So God, protect us from us. God, draw us back to you. God, do whatever it takes to keep us desperate for you. God, we love you. God, we trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.